Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 64th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is retaining freedom after speech. I'm joined by Jim Dietert. He is the author of Choosing Courage, the Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Jim is the John L. Coley Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He's won multiple awards for his teaching, as well as his curriculum development at both UVA and Cornell University. Welcome to the show, Jim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Absolutely. So uh, give us a brief overview with the book, if you don't mind. So Choosing Courage is, is really my attempt to share the insights I developed in a couple decades of research on why people do or don't speak up or stand out in different ways at work. Um, it's an attempt to demystify uh, a lot of notions that I think get in the way. Uh, notions, for example, about uh, courage being some you know inborn or genetic trait that some have, but most of us don't, um, or about what kind of behaviors constitute courage. And really the central message is that there are just so many things we can learn to do or before the big moments, during and after, that make a huge difference in whether, in fact, you know, you remain free or, for that matter, employed um, after you sort of speak up or, or step out in bold ways. And, you know, in that regard, what I think is most critical is for people to understand courage is not some, you know, some property. If you, you know, if you did an autopsy of a person, you can't find some stock of courage. Courage is a set of behaviors. It's a label we apply to sets of behaviors. We do courageous things. And since it's a set of behaviors, it's like skill in any behavioral domain. Um, Your ability comes through practice. And so I lay out lots of tools and ideas about how people can do deliberate, meaningful practice to become the person they want to be at work. Okay. Yeah. No skills, practice, tool set, and as you said, context, uh, the reason we chose this episode title is uh, because someone in Nigeria that you're quoting the book said, yes, there's freedom of speech. The question here is, is there freedom after speech, after I dare to speak up and defend my point of view? Give us, if you would, a, a definition of work, what workplace courage means for you and, and therefore for your readers in the book. Yeah, so most simply, we can just think of courageous acts at work. As things somebody does, behavior, specific acts somebody does for what they or others perceive to be a worthy cause, despite possible risks. And those risks can be, you know, economic or career related. They can be social risks and fear of losing friends, being excluded. They can be psychological risks and fear of looking stupid, um, being embarrassed. And in some cases, they can be physical risks. And so, Courage is really just the willingness to stand up and do something or say something, 
because you or others think it's important, despite there being potential risks. Okay. And in terms of the worthy causes, can you give us the flavor of what kind of things you know tend to come up? I mean, you, after all, run an experimental lab, experiential lab for leaders uh, at UVA. Uh, what kind of things have you seen patterns over the years in terms of what constitutes a, a worthy cause? So worthy causes can be, let's say, quite work-related, right? They can be speaking up to, to fix a problem, uh, to stop an inefficient or fix an inefficient process or practice. It can be uh, in the interpersonal domain, um, you know, speaking up, standing up uh, in the face of hurtful, uh, abusive, racist, sexist language, um, or other forms of, you know, lack of civility. Um, it can be uh, opportunities pursued. It can be, you know, innovations, creative moves, bold stretch growth. Uh, it can be all sorts of behaviors um, that have as their outcome the enhancement of individuals' well-being, and in the work context, you know, the the organization or a unit's well-being. Okay. There's there's a wonderful moment in the book where you're talking about the difference between what you called eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. I, I can't get out of the interview without giving you a chance to explain that difference. Yeah, I think uh, David Brooks hit it. Uh, I have to give credit to David Brooks for making that distinction. I think he hit it on the head and said, most of us, unfortunately, spend a whole lot of our time, if we're honest, at work and at life thinking about our resume virtues, you know, these these things that we can you know, list on our resume as accomplishments, um, things that help us get ahead, get the next promotion. But he said, you know, in reality, uh, when you die, um, most of those resume virtues or accomplishments are not going to be the things that people say about us at our funeral. At least we would certainly hope not. And so the reason I talk about resume versus eulogy virtues in my book is Oftentimes, I think people sacrifice, fail to speak up for, fail to take action around the things they very much would, very much hope would be their eulogy virtues because they're so worried about padding their resume. And it doesn't mean we never have to sort of be smart or political about what we choose to do and not do, but a life in which we pursue just our resume of virtues um, would lead people to a lot of regret toward the end of their career and the end of their life. Sure. And you mentioned the book, uh, Regrets is, you know, is a very serious matter when you you do the final ledger. Yeah, it sure is. And in fact, one of the things that, that I learned that really fascinated me and is consistent with my experience, what people have personally told me in my research is that regrets tend to be by, you know, a factor of about three to one about inaction. So when people look back and they say, what do I regret? They tend to say, I should have done X. I wish I had done Y. Um, much more often than they say, geez, I did X and I screwed it up or it didn't go so well, or there was a consequence. It seems that as time passes, we have a hard time rationalizing away why we didn't do things we knew were important. And so I think while in the short run, sort of in the immediate time frame, it's pretty easy to get focused on all the risks and therefore the reasons not to do something at work. It is worth trying to keep a longer term horizon and realizing that um, in the longer run, you probably regret those things you didn't do. 
Okay. Well, let, let's talk about things that do specifically happen because you have something called the Workplace Courage Acts Index. Um, and it goes into very specific behaviors and you have some sampling of that. I, I don't believe it's probably the full thing, but on page 28 of your book under the rubric Truth to Power, uh, you offer us some of these examples where you're, you're looking at how people have evaluated based on uh, how often an activity is done and how courageous they viewed it as being from not at all to extremely courageous. Can you take us through, and you may not have that page of your book open in front of you, but you've lived this. Uh, maybe there's a few examples you can touch on and how they get rated just so we can ground this in some specific behaviors. Sure. So when we're in the domain of you know, what I call speaking truth to power, we're, we're essentially talking about behaviors where the primary risk would be that economic or career type of consequence, right? Because you're you're going to challenge, you're going to potentially, you know, threaten um, the ego of somebody with the power, you know, to do something with you in terms of your pay, your promotability, your employment. And so this is behaviors um, ranging from, are you willing to give your direct boss feedback about policies or procedures? Those are work-related issues. Are you willing to give feedback to him or her about interpersonal problems, inappropriate behavior? Are you willing to point out uh, illegal or unethical things? Speaking truth to power also can involve uh, bosses beyond one's direct boss. So, you know, skip level leaders, people two, three, four levels up the chain. Are you willing to provide that kind of honest input? It also involves behaviors like um, being willing to go to your own boss, to go to bat for your own subordinates or your team members or to take the hit for mistakes made by somebody else. Um, it can involve being willing to sort of act beyond your official job description or you know, level of formal authority because you think it's the right thing to do to use that extra discretion. So there's this whole set of behaviors that involve you know, essentially challenging, confronting, recommending change um, to people with more power. And statistically to ground this a little bit, if you look across, you know, several thousand respondents, um, about 75% of all respondents say those behaviors I just mentioned in their own context are moderately courageous to extremely courageous. So a minimum of moderately courageous to do those things. And as a result, those same people say those behaviors happen when they could, when the opportunities arise about 40% or less, depending on the specific behavior. And so, is that change going from boss to leader? Because you got in that category, you've got three actions related to boss and three where you're maybe skipping a, a step or two in the hierarchy. Does that 40% hold across all six examples, three from bosses and three from leaders, or does it come down appreciably once you're jumping the ranks? So what you'll see, and, and this part I think is not particularly surprising, uh, when you go from direct boss to skip level leader, any type of input gets a bit more risky, right? The percentage sure, is sure. That's what I would have expected. Yeah. Uh, but it's also true that within any given target, so your boss, for example, content matters a lot. So the numbers also go down appreciably from would you tell your boss about, hey, here's an idea I have about how to do something new or different to, hey, boss, here's something illegal or immoral we should stop doing. Uh, sure. Those percents also drop. And okay. you know, what's also worth noting is across all the different categories on the Workplace Courage X Index, 
the more a behavior is seen as courageous, the less likely it is to happen. The, the correlation um, is pretty reliably about negative 0.7. So, you know, what does that mean? It means that if you think these behaviors we're talking about are important, but a lot of people in your organization think they require courage or are courageous, you are not likely getting enough of those behaviors. Sure. No, I was reading another book recently where Mohei takes over at Ford. They're losing tons of money. He has a meeting and he says to his senior people, uh, do we have any problems we need to discuss? And everybody acts like it's all rosy. So he finally has the courage to step up and say, well, I, I can identify at least one problem. And finally, people start to open up a bit and the conversation moves forward in a more, you know, real sort of way. Yeah, it's uh, a great, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Dan. Well, on that line, I mean, one of the things I often will tell leaders when they say, well, look, I'm working really hard on this and I think I'm really open and we got a safe environment. Um, you know, pe people don't tell me we have all these problems in meetings and, and they interpret the silence as somehow a good sign. And yeah. I, I say, well, let me just suggest to you that that might not be as rosy a picture to use your, your words as you think it is. Yeah, no, I have a friend who's from Uruguay. He said, don't never forget in Latin American culture, the truth might travel horizontally. It does not travel vertically. Yeah. Uh, I think organizations even outside of, uh, you know, South America experience those same issues. Well, yeah, Dan, and to, to go back to actually, you know, your opening story about that, that Nigerian um, journalist who said, you know, you can, you know, you can speak freely, but you just might not be free after that. And he, of course, was talking about the political reality, right? What might happen, the consequences. And of course, in the U.S., you know, we we are proud of and we talk a lot about the First Amendment rights, which gives us the right to be critical of our government or government leaders without consequence. But I think what we have to say, if we're honest, is that for the vast, vast majority of workers in the U.S., the First Amendment rights end the minute you enter your office door. Um, you know, I can stand on the street and criticize any political figure I want, but if I enter my office and criticize my boss or the CEO, um, they can fire me at will in about 90% of jobs in the U.S. So, you know, we may be free in the sense of not being imprisoned, um, but we may not be, we are not nearly as free as we think we are in terms of lack of career consequences. Sure. No, I had experience with that rather quickly. I had joined a, a Fortune 200 company. One of my duties was to be in charge of the annual report. And I came back with a vastly different format, which actually proved to be very successful. But my immediate boss and the VP above that person both said, I won't turn down your idea. I'll simply allow you to take it to the next level. So eventually it got to the CEO. He asked me some questions. I justified why I wanted to make changes. He said, great, let's give it a try. And at the moment he said, great. Then they both stepped into his sight line. Until then they had hidden in the boardroom behind him. <laughs> and I go, okay, I think I understand the picture here pretty well. Yep. It brings me to a, a statement and a question that I think is implicit in your last remark, uh, which was, when, if ever, we're going to get to democracy in the workplace, because you you mentioned that about 80 percent of workers uh, do feel constrained. That's a that's another survey that was done. Feel constrained about talking honestly. Have you seen instances and maybe with the intervention of your work on courage? Have you seen places where this this percentage is getting better, that there's some breakthrough? What what helps get us to some degree, degree of openness? And I guess I'll call it democracy at work. 
Yeah. So to start maybe pessimistically and then moving up and optimistic sure, sure. uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, would have to say based on not just sort of my own, you know, experience with organizations about data, but actually my read, you know, going back, um, if you read, you know, evolutionary uh, biologists, other kind of um, anthropological work, you know, I think um, as much as we wish it were different, you know, humans are probably hardwired in a sort of hierarchical fashion. Um, we very quickly, like our closest, you know, other species, we very quickly learn um, authority and deference, um, submission structures. And, you know, I think one way of, of thinking about that reality is if democracy was sort of the natural state of human beings, sort of egalitarian, it was the natural state of human beings. Why do we have to fight so damn hard to keep it as a political system? Um, right. I mean, we, we yes. see how easy it is to put any kind of true democracy at risk. That wouldn't be true if it was our natural state. So I think it is an uphill battle. And in my own work, um, what I've seen is that in most organizations. So if you look across organizations, you know, yes, we can talk about a few places that seem to be fairly special. You know, people will talk about Pixar under Ad Mall and a few other places. But for the most part, my experience has been when you get into larger organizations, that most organizations are in, you know, the 40 to 60% overall in terms of people saying it's safe to speak up or, you know, we have a climate of challenging. You know, it's a kind of 50-50 proposition in, in the vast majority of organizations. But what you see differs is within any organization um, where there are, you know, 50, 100, 500 units, smaller, you know, units that get aggregated up, you can find in otherwise similar units, you know, two manufacturing facilities, for example, using the same product. Um, One of those units will have a a safe to speak up climate of 85 percent and its counterpart will have 25 percent. And so what you see tends not to be large or old organizations that have completely mastered it, but parts of organizations where the right leaders have consistently demonstrated the right behaviors, changed enough policies or practices that you have these pockets of good. And, and in that regard, you know, I think there's a lot of relation, a lot of relation between my work and Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety. Um, Amy was actually an advisor of mine. And it turns out now that often, you know, I'll get called in succession um, to Amy um, being called and working because Amy will work with an organization or give a talk on psychological safety. And then, you know, some of those folks will turn to me and say, look, um, we're a hundred percent committed to this idea of creating a more, a safer environment, a more psychologically safe place for everybody, but we're not there yet. So in the meantime, can you help us work on the types of behaviors that are still going to be hard, but important? And so I I do think um, it is about putting in the work. And and I do think because of sort of our nature, um, it is an ongoing, um, it is an ongoing effort. You can't you can't create a safe to speak up environment, um, change leaders and think it's going to be the same. You have to stick with it. No, no, it, it makes sense. And you do have obviously tools and practices in the book. So let's go to one that's quite fundamental. It's a courage ladder where there's different rungs 
and the opportunity to choose really specific alternatives to current behavior. Um, based on the, the clients you've worked with, the situations, the, the data you've studied, can you give me a couple of prototypical rungs on that ladder that you've seen uh, over the course of your work? Sure. So the, the basic idea before I'll give you an example, but the, the basic idea of a courage ladder, the reason I think it's important goes to some really foundational ideas in, in psychology, in change. Uh, for example, you know, exposure therapy. If you were going to teach somebody, you know, to overcome horrifying fear of a snake um, or a, uh, you know, a spider or giving a public speech, um, you don't say the first act is to go, you know, walk in the room, open the cage and pick up the cobra. Yes. Um, <laughs> you might, in fact, right, for quite some period of time, say that the only goal is to open the door and stand in the doorway 20 feet away from the cage um, and to learn, you know, to control one's breathing, for example. And so the same is true in workplaces. I think the reason we we have all these myths and these difficulties with courage is when people Think about like, oh, okay, I'm going to stand up and do something courageous at work. What tends to come to mind is actually sort of the top of the ladder, the scariest, riskiest thing. And of course, you know, if you were to actually try that, it wouldn't go very well, most likely. And that would only confirm for you that this fear is a good thing. I'm never going to open my mouth again. And so the idea of the ladder is to say you start with more manageable things at the bottom rung yeah, of your sure. ladder. Right. So that um, you can have at least enough skill or you can see at least enough, you know, in how you talk to yourself about it afterwards. Like, yeah, that was scary, but I didn't actually die or get in trouble that you would sort of develop both the efficacy and the increased skills to keep moving forward. So what does that look like? You know, for some people, uh, I'll be honest, I, I think a lot of people when they start with a courage ladder, some of the things, even though, you know, they might say they go into it thinking it's going to be about um, work behaviors, many people will realize in the process of developing a courage ladder that, you know, there's a conversation with my, my mother or father or my, my partner or, or a friend um, that I've been avoiding. So, so many times they'll start, you know, with some outside of work conversations they've been avoiding. Um, you know, other lower level or mid-tier rungs might be, you know, I've been avoiding a conversation with a peer about some discomfort in how we're sharing the workload. Um, I, it, you, might have on, you might have the tendency, for example, to say yes to everything and end up feeling overwhelmed um, and resentful. And so you might put on the bottom of your ladder, yeah, I'm gonna say no three times this week um, in a polite way. Uh, you know, you get to sort of moderate level, it's, you know, you might have that really difficult performance evaluation conversation with a beloved employee who's just not doing that well. Um, you get to the top, right? That's where, you know, I might take that big stretch assignment that involves moving functions or moving to a new city or country. It might be, you know, I'm going to go confront my boss about this practice that for a long time I've thought was unethical or was bad for customers. Um, I'm going to go confront somebody about some ways they talk to others that are just really hurtful. So, everybody's courage ladder is different because, yep, yep. you know, you and I and everybody else, when you think about those career economic risks um, versus social risks versus psychological risks, we feel differently about that. Um, you know, 
each of us feels more or less willing to put our job at risk. Each of us is more or less agreeable, right? More concerned about losing friendships. So depending sort of on how you perceive those risks, it determines sort of what your ladder would look like. Okay. No, that's fair. I, I confess that as you were giving that explanation, I was thinking about someone who I, I wish had maybe approached their courage ladder differently. Uh, it was a business conference in Chicago, and she said partway through the speech, this is my first public speech ever. And I thought, we've already figured that out, honey, because yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't so good. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's go to another real good specific in the book. Um, you're kind of moving us through the process, and there's a series of stages that you might have to take on where you're employing advocacy and inquiry. You're reframing a current situation. You're problematizing a situation. You're articulating a request. You're anchoring where you want to go based on a shared purpose. So I just threw five things at you, but I'm sure they're all things that you're very familiar with. Can you maybe pick out at least one of those and kind of cobble together an example for us, some way in which this is a, a, a germane scenario that you've you've helped people with? Sure. I mean, what you just mentioned are specific tools, ways of, you know, advocating one's own position, trying to persuade somebody, exactly. yep. ways of, you know, taking better perspective, doing better listening, better questioning. If I go up a level from there, you know, what I would say they encompass is this broader notion that all of us, or I would say almost all of us, if we're honest, when we learned to sort of have conversations, whether it's sort of persuading somebody or just, you know, having a, a debate with a friend or a colleague, we learned to try to win. And the way we learned to pitch our idea is in the way it's most compelling to us. But of course, the problem is in organizations, when you want somebody either to grant you resources or when you want somebody to change, it's kind of irrelevant how you see them matter. What matters is how they see the matter, since you need something from them. And so, so many of the tools ultimately come down to, are you thinking about how the target receives information? And so here's, a, here's an example. Let's say I want, you know, I'm at a university, I want my dean um, to invest significantly in a new curriculum, a new set of courses for the school. I can go in there and I can say, um, hey, here's a, here's a new curriculum module that I think is wonderful for the following reasons. It's a great opportunity for us to, you know, become more recognized. And um, it is so consistent with who we are as a school culturally. Well, if it turns out that my dean is not that compelled by opportunities, but is very compelled by threats, like we're going to drop in the rankings if we don't do this, um, and is similarly not as compelled by, well, this is culturally fitting for Darden, but is more compelled by, um, are we going to generate more or less student revenue as a result of this tuition revenue? Then it doesn't matter sort of how brilliantly I convinced, tried to convince him that this was a great opportunity that culturally fit, right? What he wants to hear is why it's a threat if we don't proceed and what the financial implications are. Now, that's a fictitious example in my particular case, but you see what I'm getting at, which is all too often we fail to use tools, we fail to manage emotions in ways that matter precisely because, while well, we're already convinced the other person isn't. Yep. 
Exactly. So you mentioned threat, and, and you also bring up some very specific emotions in the book, fear and anger. So let's imagine you are, uh, and I don't want to pick on this uh, said dean, this hypothetical dean, but let's imagine whether it's that or uh, a senior executive, and there's someone who, quite honestly, in their personality is a little more given to fear, and someone's a little more given to anger, on the other hand. How might you approach them differently knowing that they have kind of a, I guess I'll call it a characteristic emotional tendency or pattern? Well, certainly, you know, part of knowing your audience, right, is knowing not just sort of the cognitively, like, gee, how do they like things framed, but it's knowing, you know, how defensive are they likely to become? What are their hot buttons? Um, And there's no question about it. Um, As we get to know people, we know that there are some people who we can go in and, you know, just sort of more efficiently sort of shoot straight with the idea. And there are others who we have to really be careful about, you know, how do they not see this as sort of a personal threat or a personal attack? And so, you know, in the book, I talk about strategies for in, in those cases, but really in all cases, really trying to, to frame things um, in we rather than, you know, me versus you or um, how we're not going to, you know, throw out or kill the existing thing, but we're going to build on something that's already been so positive for us. Um, so I think the more we can use, you know, win-win, we language, build on existing successes, taking it to a new level, um, these kinds of phrases are so much less likely to evoke, you know, a defensive um, me versus you kind of threat reaction. No, no, I, I like that a lot. I remember also you mentioned in the book, you know, bundling sometimes where you might have this initiative and that initiative and it's got a bigger purpose and it doesn't have thumbprints on it in terms of some particular thing that they advocated for or institutionalized is the thing you're looking to overturn. You're trying to get a little more momentum behind it. That's right. So and, I, and, you know, Dan, one other one other thing related, you know, you can bundle your issue. Another thing you can do if you say, well, look, this person tends to react a certain way to me. Because whatever, right? I'm in a certain unit. I'm of a certain gender, a certain tenure, whatever. Um, then another strategy can be: um, who has a better, more trusting relationship with this person, and how can I enlist oh, them sure. to help me? Right? You don't always have to be. You know, I've written about this idea of voice proxies. Right? Somebody else might be better positioned to carry forward your message in some cases. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're bundling ideas, but you could also be bundling allies in effect. That's right. Or, or advocates. So, well, I, I want to thank you so much, Jim. This has been episode number 64 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, the title of this topic has been Retaining Freedom After Speech. My guest, Jim Dietert, he is the author of Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can also check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's since logic.com or to the new books network under the show's name. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram, but there are so many great epigrams involving courage that I couldn't resist actually taking two of them. Uh, the first from Coco Chanel, who said the most courageous act is still to think for yourself but allowed. And then from William Faulkner, you cannot swim for new horizons until you have courage to lose sight of the shore. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.